know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. My name is Ted O'Connell, your host for this podcast. My guest today is Dr. Dean Anselmo, who is a pediatric surgeon at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and Miller Children's Hospital, as well as co-director of the Vascular Anomaly Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Dr. Anselmo is an associate professor of clinical surgery at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. Dr. Anselmo received his undergraduate degree from New York University, his medical degree from UCLA, and completed his internship and residency in general surgery at UCLA Medical Center before going on to a fellowship in pediatric surgery at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. He is board certified in surgery and pediatric surgery and is a member of the American College of Surgeons, American Academy of Pediatrics, the Pacific Association of Pediatric Surgeons, and the Pediatric Trauma Society. Dr. Anselmo has had his research published extensively in peer-reviewed medical journals. Dean, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience about yourself? Thanks, uh, Ted, for having me. Um, No, I think you pretty much uh, covered it. Um, it, In addition to my role uh, at Miller Children's Hospital, I've been the the chair of pediatric surgery um, at Miller Children's, so I have uh, somewhat of an an administrative role there as well. That's great. You've got a really impressive resume and you're the first person with a pediatric background and a surgical background for that matter, joining us on this podcast. So we're looking forward to hear what you have to say. Can you tell us about how you decided on a career in pediatric surgery, just kind of giving us a a background of of your career? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I've always kind of been geared towards, uh, pediatrics and, uh, and, uh, and pediatric medicine. Um, pretty early on in medical school, I decided that I was aligned to more of a surgical specialty and I got involved with, um, uh, transplant surgery at UCLA and did a lot of my research in transplant surgery, but I'd always kind of, um, wanted to, you know, stay true to my desire to work with kids and, uh, doing just pediatric liver transplant was a little too subspecialized. So I uh, kind of switched gears and, and, um, I was fortunate enough at that time to match at children. Hospital Los Angeles, which uh, was an additional two years of training after the, the seven years of general surgery. I have no regrets on, on that pathway. I think I'm one of the cheerleaders of, of my specialty. I really do enjoy my job a lot. Well, it looks like you've had a really dynamic career. And your expertise is in helping babies born with vascular malformations. And you're the director of the Vascular Anomaly Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Can you tell our audience a bit about vascular malformations and what that means in the context of your work? 
Sure. It was, um, you know, it was one of those things that uh, um, I remember a, a, a lecture given by uh, one of the surgeons and one of his, advi- his advice at that time was, you know, to, to find a disease, find something that you're interested in and find something that you can specialize and focus on um, and be an expert in. Uh, and during the course of my training at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, I identified that there was um not necessarily a lack of expertise, but there was really a not not a, a focus on it. And vascular anomalies is a it's kind of a heterogeneous group of relatively rare diseases. One of which is not very rare, and a lot of pediatricians see quite a bit, and that's hemangiomas, which are you know benign vascular tumors. But there are some very rare and very complex um, malformations. And it's essentially a um, so the malformations are something that kids are born with. It's um, they can they tend to grow with a child and um, the treatment really requires a team approach. So I was fortunate enough to put together a really talented uh, group of people. And we have a a multidisciplinary clinic and center where we see these patients and provide care, not only surgery, but medical care. Um, our interventional radiologists uh, are involved. So so that's been rewarding. They can be very challenging, but we've definitely shown a significant improvement with this team approach. That's, that's great. We talk a lot about multidisciplinary care and interprofessionalism and how important that is. As you said, there are different types of vascular malformations, and we know that treatment options depend on size and location and probably a a number of other different factors that you have more expertise in than I. Generally, what are the treatment options for pediatric vascular malformations? So it really depends on the malformation, the degree of symptoms. Um, We have been, a lot of our research is focused on trying to develop guidelines and algorithms for for care um, for other practitioners. So, you know, we start with with treatment that's less invasive, obviously. So um, say a a child with a lymphatic malformation, used to be called lymphangioma or cystic hygroma. Um, The the care typically will start with sclerotherapy, where an interventional radiologist will uh, inject medication directly into the, the malformation, kind of like putting super glue inside a water balloon and trying to fill it back up. It, it kind of collapses it down. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, promise with a medication called Sirolimus, which is a an immunosuppression drug used for transplant patients um, that has a, um, a modest treatment effect. And then um, we offer uh, surgical resection, debulking surgery when needed. Um, when there's skin involvement, we have uh, we have a dermatologist who manages that aspect of it. Um, so that that's a kind of a general idea using lymphatic malformations as a as as an example. Um, some of them will respond entirely to just sclerotherapy alone. Uh, some are are much too large or complex to be treated with sclerotherapy and require just medication and or surgery. So it, it, there's some there's some nuances in it, and um, our algorithms, our approach to this has has really changed over the last few years. Yeah, I'm hearing that there is a tremendous amount of nuance to it and and that treatment approaches are probably really unique depending on on the different malformations in each child and the location and the size and and things like that. Is that pretty accurate summary? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, we we approach each patient differently. Fortunately, you know, I'm I'm a surgeon, but when I'm in vascular anomalies clinic, um, I really kind of consider myself a vascular anomalist as opposed to a surgeon um, because we 
we've shown that that surgery is not the be- always the best treatment up front, and we're getting really good results with with sclerotherapy and you know and and medical therapy. So, but it really depends on the patient where it's located, if it's causing problems. Um, yeah, so it's been that's been rewarding. Yeah, it sounds like you're really advancing medicine, which is is great to hear, and you have a significant. Um, leadership role in in different capacities at children's hospitals. So I'd like to talk a bit about COVID-19 with you since this is the topic of the show. And a significant part of the approach to flattening the curve and preventing the spread of COVID-19 has been this idea of social distancing. And initially, we thought this was to protect the health of older adults and those with chronic medical problems primarily But now we're seeing more pediatric infections and even infections in young, healthy adults. Can you tell us a bit about the infections in the pediatric population? As this was developing, the news, um, as we were getting kind of some data from China and, and then Italy, the, the, the theme, what we were thinking about this was that this was primarily affecting older adults and people with comorbid condition, underlying lung disease, immunosuppression. And this whole notion of flattening the curve is really to is to allow the healthcare system to respond to the, the influx of patients. So the, the healthcare system in China was, was overwhelmed, which prompted them to build a hospital in a matter of 10 days, right? They built this hospital just for COVID patients. Parts of Italy have been completely overwhelmed due to the rapid influx of patients. And again, the thought was, okay, this is primarily older patients. The mortality rate seems to be higher in the older patients. Now, what what we do at, at, at Children's Hospital um, is take care of kids, um, but it's but these kids often have underlying medical conditions. Um, they're kids who are on chemotherapy, who are immunosuppressed, kids with other comorbidities, other other diseases. But not only, uh, so those, those patients are at risk for COVID-19. By slowing the rate of transmission, we increase the chance that those patients will not be as affected or not get infected, and, and we can we can treat them and, and take care of them and not have that the healthcare system overwhelmed. The interesting paper that was recently published uh, from China showed that while the mortality rate is indeed low in in children and patients less than 18, um, almost 40% of those kids developed a moderate or severe illness. So I've been trying to make the point all along that it's not just mortality that we need to focus on with this. It's the, the morbidity of it. It's the the support of care that's required. And if nearly 40% of kids are getting moderate to severe illness, that's significant. That's very significant. We need to stop thinking about this as just a, as just an old, you know, well, it's just a flu and it's just, you know, it's just really going to affect older people. And, you know, 16,000 people die every year from influenza and it's not a big deal. Well, no, I mean, this is, this is significant for every, um, every group. I'm glad. And, um, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I'm I'm sorry, I was going to say that I'm glad that you're emphasizing this point about it not just being a disease of of older adults or older adults with chronic medical problems, because that's a really important point to make. But I cut you off, so go ahead and finish your statement there. 
Well, my other point was just thinking about it in terms of healthcare providers. The majority of healthcare providers are in their are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and the morbidity in that group is also very significant. And there are and if we're and if those are the doctors, those are the healthcare workers taking care of these patients, being exposed and getting sick, um, that's a concern also. Um, whether I, I read a recent report that healthcare workers are not only um, more susceptible and transmission rate is, is higher, obviously, because they're the ones taking care of the patient. But the mortality rate among young healthcare workers is higher than the general population. And the thought is that the, they're being inoculated with more virus than, than others. So... That, that's a great point to make. And in, in episode one, I interviewed a virologist who made that same point about viral load and, and how much virus you're being exposed to when you do get exposed can probably have a very significant effect on how your body responds to this illness. Yeah, I just, um, I mean, I just read a report that there are 13 doctors in Lombardy, Italy that have died thus far. And um, we, you know, and then we all know that the the initial two doctors in China have died, and these were young people. Um, so it's it's scary from a, a general, you know, a general population mortality. But if healthcare workers um, start contracting this and get sick and are not able to treat patients and or dying from this, we're going to have a real problem here with um, with resources. Absolutely. Now, Dean, in your answer to that question, you mentioned the term morbidity. And in medicine, we use the terms morbidity and mortality. Can you break that down just a little bit so our audience knows exactly what we're talking about? Yes, of course. I mean, it's just the disease. The morbidity is the disease of it. Mortality, obviously, is the death rate. Um, my point was that the mortality and obviously people dying from this is very scary and we want to prevent that. But the number of people that are that are sick and require care is also significant. And um, this whole idea of flattening the curve and, and although the area under the curve is the same, if we can spread this out, then we have enough ICU beds, hospitals beds, masks, um, oxygen masks, ventilators to appropriately manage the number of patients that are just simply sick. And again, most people, and this is still true, most people who get this get better across the board. Um, But if we don't have the resources to take sick patients, if we don't have the, the ventilators, if, if the system is completely overwhelmed, then, uh, you know, it's very easy to do the math that, that, okay, well, you don't get care, you don't get the care that you need, then the mortality rate is going to go up. And that's what they're seeing in Italy right now, where people are not getting access even to the healthcare system. People are being treated in hallways, people are being intubated and put on ventilators in a hallway, in a hospital hallway. If you think about that, you would never... You can't, I can't imagine walking down the hallway in the hospital and seeing a patient on a bed, right? That doesn't make, you need an ICU bed, you need an ICU room, you need, you know, specialized nursing. So that, that's a potential problem. Right. And even we talked in a previous episode too about the potential for this virus to become aerosolized, basically sprayed up into the air during the process of intubation and how risky that could be for people around And it's risky enough when you're doing it in an emergency department room or in an ICU room that's isolated. But just think about the public health risk when that's happening in a hospital hallway, right? Right. No, exactly. And and that's another interesting aspect of this, that protocols are being developed um, by ICU doctors and anesthesiologists 
essentially, it's very interesting how information is being spread and and how people are thinking about this from a medical standpoint. You know, we learn about treatment for diseases obviously starting in medical school and 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 we update our knowledge with uh, medical conferences and peer-reviewed journal articles and trials and things of that nature. This is evolving so rapidly that people are learning about this and and trying to understand it by Facebook groups, by um, by social media, group texting. There are anesthesiologists, obviously no other doctors, right? We know somebody knows someone in Seattle, somebody knows someone in New York, and there we know people in Italy, and we can communicate now by um, social media and by text message, and we can share experiences, and we know that okay, well, this is aerosolized, this is airborne. There's no way you can explain the transmission rate of this by just touching and touching your face, and this whole you know this whole thing. Yes, we all should wash our hands. We should avoid touching our face, but um, but that's not you know there's that's not the primary mode of transmission. It seems. Although, again, studies need to be done. So protocols are being developed based on these other doctors' experiences and, you know, the just from the use of oxygen. So we're not, we're, so now we're saying if a patient needs oxygen that has COVID, they're placed directly on a non-rebreather mask. They're not given a high flow nasal cannula, CPAP or BiPAP because we know it's aerosolized and those modes of oxygen delivery aerosolize. So it's a non-rebreather. And then um, if a patient decompensates or gets worse on a non-rebreather, um, they're getting, they're, then they go straight to being intubated and, and they're doing something called a rapid sequence intubation, which is um, which is where you you typically you mask a patient first before you can use a bag valve mask. They're going straight to straight to an uh, endotracheal tube to try to reduce aerosolization of uh, of the virus. And when you say endotracheal tube, that's the typical tube that we use to intubate a patient and to put them on a mechanical ventilator that we're hearing so much about. Dean, paint a picture for the audience to what a non-rebreather mask is and, and what it looks like. So it's just a, a mask that has a seal around your your mouth that has a um, essentially a reservoir in it, and it can deliver high flow oxygen. Um, and you know, the, a, a nasal cannula is so the two little prongs that go in your nose, and and that just provides continuous oxygen. The non rebreather kind of traps the air essentially against your face and re- reduces the egress of, of you know an aerosolization of respiration. So yeah, so that's and then. A bad, you know, when they mask, when they talk about masking someone, that's where they they uh, essentially it's like a mask, and then someone has a, a like a balloon almost that they squeeze to provide and deliver breaths into the lungs. So that's being avoided, also. That's a very d- good description of that. Science, 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 hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.
Now, you were just talking about how doctors are trying to communicate with one another to try to kind of figure this whole thing out in the midst of COVID-19 and our knowledge about it evolving so rapidly. So how are doctors and hospitals sifting through so much information? Much of this hasn't been validated and it's kind of word of mouth or studies that haven't been reviewed yet in peer-reviewed journals? And how are they sifting through that to establish protocols for triaging and caring for patients, especially when organizations like the Centers for Disease Control aren't providing very much guidance or aren't keeping up with how fast everything's changing? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I work with, obviously, you know, anesthesiologists, and I've been in touch primarily with a lot of them because they are in touch with their anesthesia colleagues around the country. I saw a video that someone had posted, basically like a a how-to. This is how how you mask someone, or this is how you you take care of someone with a suspected or confirmed COVID, right? This is is the PPE that you need to wear. This is how we're intubating. People are doing their own videos and making their own videos. There's been a lot of discussion about, you're right, the CDC has been slow, I think, to provide recommendations. And and I think it's general knowledge now the healthcare system is not well prepared for this in the United States. Um, so the, there are a lot of people talking about these N95 masks, and, and we know that we don't have enough. It's estimated we need 3.5 billion N95 masks in the U.S. to handle this disease. Um, we have about 250 million total, so just not nearly enough. So people are talking about, well, can you reuse an N95? Can you sterilize it in some way? And do we know the effectiveness of that? The CDC is saying a surgical mask only. And we know that this this is a, a, a viral particle that's two microns in diameter. It's it's incredibly small. And a surgical mask is not is not sealed against your face. And it's really only for droplets, primarily worn by surgeons, right? That's not typically meant to prevent yourself from getting an infection. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of discussion around that. Like, okay, we'd, we're not necessarily, I think the, the CDC is giving those recommendations with the understanding that we have a, a significant shortage of N95 masks and that N95 masks should be, should be used for, you know, specific situations and maybe not worn for all suspect cases or for all patient encounters. But again, four out of five infections from coronavirus are contracted from an asymptomatic individual, right? 80% of the infections comes from someone who's not infected. So we really have to look at this as, okay, well, listen, anybody you come across could have it. So should we be wearing, I mean, ideally we have 10 billion N95s and from day one, everybody wears a new N95 mask, but that's obviously not going to happen. Anyway, so that's one of the things that, that physicians are talking about and how, and how to take care of this and how to how to deal with the shortage of, of masks and, and what we call PPE, which is personal protective equipment. So not only do you need to wear a mask, you need to wear a gown. You need to wear a face shield or eye some some type of eye protection and then obviously gloves. Obviously it's easy to put on all that stuff, right? We know how to do that in medicine. You know how to put on a mask and gowns and gloves. Um, but but how to take it off? How do you take it off where you're not contaminating everything? That's called donning and doffing PPE. So there's been a lot of discussion about that and just making sure that people are doing this correctly and not aerosolizing the virus when they remove all that equipment. Right. There's a lot of continual education and relearning that needs to happen around that. 
Um, Dean, what is your impression of the response of the healthcare profession to this COVID-19 crisis? I mean, generally speaking, it's interesting and it's something I've, you know, I've been thinking about. I, I mean, I think the, the response currently is is appropriate. Um, it's, I think, for the most part, uh, at both, you know, for, at, at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and at Miller Children's, the hospital administration, physician leaders, by and large, uh, I think are doing the right thing and getting prepared and, and taking the appropriate steps. I think uh, the U.S. healthcare system is largely unprepared for this, I think, not only from, a, you know, from having enough uh, enough supplies, resources, and equipment, I think just also from just a public health standpoint. We learned of this virus on January 7th, and it's now over two months later, and we've had plenty of time to anticipate this. We knew that there was a viral infection in China in January. We knew that there was it was a, a novel coronavirus, and 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 I see kids, you know, I see kids with coronavirus infections all the time. This is it's it's essentially causes a cold, um, and I think you know the concern was well, perhaps from a public health standpoint. I mean, I, I think it, you know we could have paid more attention to what was going on with China and and made some more preparations. You know, well, how well how do you do that, and how do you measure that response? A massive viral infection or pandemic has been something on the minds of a lot of people, epidemiologists, because we've seen them. We've seen them, obviously, HIV, SARS, MERS, Ebola. We know that this is a, a risk. I think right now we're doing everything we possibly can. We've canceled all elective cases. We have aggressive rollout of, of telemedicine program. Um, we uh, essentially have identified, you know, the majority of my patients. We are doing telephone follow-up. We can have patients or parents send pictures by email. And fortunately, the you know the HIPAA rules, the privacy patient privacy rules, have been relaxed right now, so that so that we can do that, where we can we can communicate with our patients and assess whether or not something is urgent. Um, so I think the response has been appropriate given what we're facing right now. Right. And even getting back to this idea of the initial response and why it took us so long to kind of respond as a country to this and, and as a healthcare profession, you know, you could, I'm sure in retrospect, we will be doing a lot of looking at that, but there really seemed to be some assumptions being made and biases creeping in, you know, things like saying, well, the, the Chinese healthcare system is not really well developed and, and that's why it was spreading there. And there's a lot of smokers in China. And is that perpetuating this, you know, assumptions about what the Chinese government involvement and then even just stepping back, you know, many of these Asian countries that did react to this quickly dealt with SARS back in 2003. And, and so they had a more recent healthcare scare around a similar virus and, and probably were just better prepared than we were because we didn't have that, that recent experience with something like this. Does that at least some of that ring true to you?
Yeah, I, I recall discussions that I had as this was developing in China, talking to uh, one of the anesthesia docs and docking and, and she has knowledge of the healthcare system in China. And, and that was our assumption. That was what we were talking about. Well, listen, this is worse in China and going to be worse in China than elsewhere because the assumption was, well, they don't have the ICU system and, and as many ventilators and, and they have pollution and there are a lot of smokers. So there was some concern and discussion about what was going on in China. Um, and then you saw what was going on in Italy, right, where by and large they have a Western medical system and they should have all the resources and, and capabilities and knowledge and expertise that we do. And, you know, they were getting inundated with patients and, and their mortality rate has been um, significantly higher than China. And you're right, those those countries, you look at Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, they've seen relatively very very few cases and and very low mortality and, and they instituted a public health protocol immediately there were some healthcare administrators from Taiwan that went to China at the beginning of the outbreak and although they didn't have a lot of information they 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 got they very quickly got an understanding of what was going on and they went back to Taiwan and and essentially they they shut it down everybody traveling from China to Taiwan was quarantined they had immediate health screening we didn't have any of that we didn't um you know it was just a lot of people came over that uh, that were infected and then they and then the whole cruise debacle in Japan so anyway, it's, um, you know, we're learning and, and I hope that this will result in a deeper understanding of and, and preparation for, for future pandemics, um, much in the same way that we are, we prepared and uh, for another 9-11 type attack. You know, we spent a lot of time, energy, resources and a, a lot of money preventing another terrorist attack. And hopefully this is, is viewed much in the same way. Right. I do hope that once this crisis is behind us and we have time to be forward looking, that we'll take more of a health systems approach and a public health approach. And, and as you say, really be trying to prepare for the, the next time something like this happens, because it really is a question of when and, and not if. Um, Dean, I'd like I'd like to loop back um, to something we were talking about, your patient population. And, and you mentioned that you care for a lot of children who have complex medical problems who may be on medications that suppress their immune system, who may be on chemotherapy. Yeah. I'd like to talk a little bit about specifically about the concerns about, of COVID-19 in that particular patient population and how much more susceptible they are. And then also talk about what we can do to help prevent the spread to infants in general and, and more particularly the, the types of children that you're caring for and, and, and kind of all vulnerable infants? Well, the good news is a, a healthy, full-term baby, uh, healthy young children, are we're not seeing the degree of infection. And, and certainly, like I said, the mortality rate is, is quite low. The premature infants are not immunocompetent, meaning they don't have a well-developed immune system. Although I haven't seen any reports of premature infants contracting this, one would imagine that if they did, it would potentially be devastating. 
and and you're right, uh, patients who are receiving chemotherapy, there are quite a few patients who, uh, particularly at, at both the children's hospitals I work at, they are immunosuppressed, they have underlying conditions, and, and we see those patients get infections, what we call opportunistic infections, where the, the pathogen has an opportunity to, to take hold. Both Children's Hospital Los Angeles and Miller Children's are taking measures to protect those vulnerable patients by limiting visitors. There's a health screening that is occurring. Um, if anyone has a suspected um, COVID-19 infection, uh, any visitor, if there are any fever, sore throat, um, those, patient, those people are being limited um, in addition to healthy visitors. Healthy visitors, because we know that there are people that are asymptomatic. Most uh, physicians now, although it's not being strongly recommended, are using some degree of PPE around immunosuppressed patients um, because of a physician can be an asymptomatic carrier and, and spread that to the patient. Obviously, those patients need care. We can't put their treatment on hold and have them go home because that will affect their outcome. That will, that has a potential too. So those patients need to continue to receive the life-saving care that they're getting. But we are across the board taking steps to to mitigate the spread to those vulnerable patients. Um, and those are, unfortunately, those are cases that we are deeming necessary. So in a patient that has a type of cancer, oftentimes we will treat with uh, cycles of chemotherapy. And then, um, and then that patient will undergo resection, will undergo surgery for the tumor. Now, if we wait, if we wait two months, that's going to affect the outcome. And those cases that, are, that we are deeming necessary cannot be delayed. And we're taking the appropriate steps to keep those patients kind of isolated and away from the, the rest of the, the, the general patient population in the hospital. Right. And so what a lot of what you're talking about there is reducing the vectors and, and trying to not have people be transmitting it, you, you know, particularly people who don't know that they're infected. And the last question I want to ask you today is kind of related to that. I don't think there's any data around the answer that you might provide, but I, I want to get your perspective on this. And the question is, should parents and particularly those who work in healthcare? consider sending their children to live with other family members who are not involved in healthcare to try to better isolate or distance themselves from bringing this virus home? That's an excellent question. I think that would be probably very difficult for people to do. I have been going to work every day. I now, before I essentially, when I come home, the first thing I do is is I take my scrubs off and I wash my face, hands and arms, theoretically decontaminate. As far as I know, I have not had any direct contact or provided any direct treatment to a COVID-19 patient yet. There are doctors that are on the front lines of this, that obviously they need to go home. And this is another thing that physicians are, are teaching each other and talking about. How do you do that? How do you go home? What's the process? There are people that are essentially uh, disrobing in their garage and taking their clothes and, and, either, and washing or disinfecting them, taking a shower, disinfecting their skin before they have any contact, any exposure to members of their family. 
Obviously, if you are ill or you think you may have been exposed directly to COVID-19, then should, you know, self-quarantine for a period of time. But that I, I think it's a tough call. I think, you know, this, these are these are trying times for everyone, particularly for doctors and healthcare workers on the front line. And to have to distance yourself from your family and loved ones at the end of a long shift where you're where you're dealing with the, the stress and the emotional turmoil of all this, that would be a, a difficult thing to do. But I think there's steps that doctors can take to reduce their risk uh, to their own family. Right. And, you know, you you talk about how difficult that would be to have to create distance with your family and also then consider that this could be going on for months, you know, and that almost becomes, um, that could be very emotionally trying and, and functionally difficult to do. But I think you painted a really great picture for the lengths that we are all going to to try to prevent bringing this this virus home with us or, or exactly. even, you know spreading it back in the other direction. Before we wrap up here, is, is there anything else that you would like our audience to know or anything that I didn't ask you that that you want to have out there in the public domain? Well, I think, you know, it's it seems as though now people are are paying attention. You see reports of people not taking this seriously and it's really just a matter of math. It's really just a simple math equation. The, uh, a 2% mortality is low for anything. But when you're dealing with something like this that's spreading so rapidly, and we now are looking at a doubling time of infection has gone from every four days to every two days, right? And it's really just a simple, it's a simple math equation. Just take a number, 13,000, and double it, right? Double it again, double it again. Every time you double it, that's two days. It, it's not going to take that long to get to 100 million people, right? Two percent of one hundred million, a third of the U.S. population. That's that's two million people. So if two million people were to die from this in the United States. That's more than than anybody can even comprehend. So that so yes, it is scary. But if we if we follow the recommendations and stay at home and prevent and do this distancing, we're going to slow the rate of it. We're going to lower that mortality. And there's some really promising stuff coming out. There's some really uh, encouraging news about treatment, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine as a potential treatment option. There's antivirals that are being studied in randomized trials. China has is reporting no new cases, only cases that are brought, you know, from other areas. And it's still true. The majority of people that get it get better. I think if we all work together and have the attitude that we're going to get through this together, as opposed to every man for himself and buy as much toilet paper as he possibly can, you know, I think we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. We're going to get through this and and hopefully learn from it. That's a great perspective to end on, Dean. Um, I think you said it very well that this has the potential to be grim, but working and moving kind of all in the same direction together um, really does have the potential. And then I, besides all those potential treatments that you mentioned, the, there's also the vaccines that are in the pipeline that will also further help reduce the spread of this. I, I want to thank you for being on the podcast and for sharing your expertise with us and your insights into how the healthcare profession is addressing all of this. I think our audience is going to find it to be very useful. Uh, keep yourself safe out there and uh, hope you have a, a great day. Great. Thanks so much, Ted. My pleasure. All right. Take care. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. 
If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.